You're listening to the Unveiling Mormonism podcast from PursueGod.org. Join us every Monday as we pull back the curtain on Mormon history, culture, and doctrine. Find more resources to continue the conversation at PursueGod.org forward slash Mormonism. Okay, today we are going to continue to cover the Gospel Topics essays from the LDS Church. Last time we talked about our Mormons Christians, that's the title of their essay. Today we're covering two essays, Bo. We're going to try to get through two, and they both relate to translation. Christians have one scripture, the Bible. Old and New Testaments, one scripture. Mormons add three more scriptures, and we're going to be dealing with two of them today. So explain that. Explain it from there. Pick it up from there real quick, Bo, and then let's talk about the translation process. Yep. So the Book of Mormon, um, Joseph Smith claimed it was an ancient record of the people that lived in the Americas, and that they had written down their account of their dealings with God and Jesus appearing to them on the American continent on golden plates. And who's Mormon? Who's this Mormon guy? Yeah. Whose book is this, after all? Yeah, so so Mormon was an ancient prophet, right? Joseph said that Mormon was an ancient prophet that lived in the Americas that compiled this record and abridged the record in his own words, and then gave it to his son Moroni, the angel Moroni. You'll see him on every Mormon temple. Mm. Um, and the angel Moroni buried that record in the ground. So it's a and record. Then, it's a record essentially of the American Indians. It's a record of the the story is in the Book of Mormon. We're not going to get into this, but the story is that at the fall of of uh, of the Southern Kingdom of Jerusalem, some Jewish people in 586, right around there, they get on a boat. They come across. They're the first ones to sail the ocean blue, not Columbus. They get to the Americas. That's those are the basically the American Indian. So basically the Book of Mormon is like um, is like the Old Testament equivalent of the Americas. Is that a good way to maybe kind yeah, of summarize yeah, for it? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a really good way to summarize it. That, that was absolutely Joseph's claim. Claimed it was the, the record of the ancient uh, American Indians, for sure. Okay, so he's got, so, he's got these plates. Moroni, yeah. The angel Moroni br- appears to him and gives him these plates. Okay, now let's pick there up the translation. Okay. <laughs> Got context. Here we go. So, so yeah. So Joseph has these golden plates in his possession. He claims, and it's time to translate them into the English language to find out what the scripture says. So, in this essay, um, it explains essentially what the translation process looked like. So they'll they'll cover a few things. They'll cover that it was translated by the gift and power of God, um, and what that means. I think it has always been a bit unclear for a lot of members of the church. It was definitely a bit unclear for me. Um, what, what it actually means is um, he used certain instruments in the translation process, and the instruments were referred to as the Urim and Thummim. Ultimately, what those instruments were, were he had a stone, maybe two stones, um, called a seer stone, and, um, and, and this, for me, when I read this, I knew that he had a seer stone in his possession, I did not know the history behind seer stones at all. Um, and this was probably the first time I started to question the Book of Mormon. Because um, I had always, growing up, believed in the book. It was just, yeah, of course, it's scripture. So is the Bible. They're both scripture. Um, but, but 
reading the way that the Book of Mormon was translated, especially um, in this essay, right? Because again, I didn't want to read anti-Mormon literature, so and there was plenty of anti-Mormon literature written about this seer stone that was in Joseph Smith's possession. Um, so when I when I read this essay, it, it became pretty clear to me that there were some things um, missing in the story. So, for example, right, it says that Joseph found instruments um, before he began the translation process. So it says that, uh, you know, the other, uh, uh, here, we'll just pick it up in, in, the, in the essay. So we're, we're reading the translation instruments section of the essay, and it says the other instrument which Joseph Smith discovered in the ground years before he retrieved the golden plates was a small oval stone or seer stone. And as a young man, Joseph Smith, like others in his day, used a seer stone to look for lost objects and buried treasure. So, okay, hang on a second. So like back in 1820, before, you know, before Joseph has these plates or anything, he's, he's using a seer stone to look for gold, right? To look for treasure. And that, I'd never known that. That was weird to me. And, and so when I, when I studied the, uh, the footnotes on this, that's when I started to really wonder what was going on. So Richard Bushman is a Mormon author. He, write, he wrote Rough Stone Rolling, and he wrote plenty of you know work on Joseph Smith before that. He's a historian. Um, and it basically says that uh, Joseph probably possessed you know, maybe more than one seer stone. He appeared to have found these stones while digging, um, and that these stones uh, ended up being what he used to take people on money digs. So in Joseph's day, before, before you know, founding the church, anything like that, he he claimed to be able to find treasure with the with this stone he had in his possession. Um, he would take people on these treasure digs. They would never find treasure. He would say that an angel had moved the treasure, and he would move on, and they would have paid him for the treasure hunt already, right? So that's how he sort of made a bit of money back in the day. Well, ultimately, he was charged for that because it was illegal to um, swindle people using seer stones. And so in this essay where it said, like others in his day, he used a seer stone to look for lost objects and buried treasure, that was a big flag for me because I I realized, wait a second, <laughs> um, all that anti-Mormon literature saying he was a treasure digger, like, oh, wait, he was. And not only he, not only was he, but he used that seer stone, and then later he used that seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon, which for me I was was mind blowing. I had no idea that Joseph was, for all intents and purposes, ripping people off with a seer stone. And again, I'm I'm not trying to speak ill of Joseph or the church. This is just in in history. This is what happened, right? In fact, Joseph admitted to taking people on these, um, uh, treasure, treasure digs, um, and says it was a terrible endeavor, wasn't profitable, yada, yada, but ultimately he was charged for it. And that's, that's when he swears never do it again. So anyway, uh, sorry, bit of a side tangent there, but it's, it's an important one because it's the same instrument. So when the, when the church claims Joseph was translating the book of Mormon by the gift and power of God, well, it, it was through this seer stone he had been taking people on treasure digs years before. It's the same stone now that he's using to 
look, he, he, so what he would do is he would put the stone in a hat, he would look in that hat, and he would read aloud the words that were on the stone is what he claimed, right? So he's not doing what I always thought he was doing, which was reading the ancient hieroglyphs, translating them into English. He's, he's actually not handling the plates at all. He's not looking at the plates. They're, they're either covered, they're in a different room, or they're buried, and he's, uh, he's dictating essentially what he sees on the seer stone. And that, that's ultimately what he claims and what, what these accounts in this essay claim. So here's the problem. Again, when I, read, when I read this gospel topic essay, I'm not really sure why they included this because I've always known what you just explained. I've always known about seer stones. I've always known that that's part of the story. Whenever, I, whenever I've, in any books I've read, No Man Knows My History, Fawn Brody, people like that, which again, Mormons aren't supposed to read, but these are the books that I've read to understand Mormonism. That's, that's the picture I see. I see. I see Joseph Smith looking into a hat and, and quote-unquote translating this by looking in this occultic magic seer stone. And so yeah. for me, that's a huge red flag. So when I read this, I'm, I'm not understanding why they would include this in their apologetics section, essentially, on their website, until, again, I want our listeners to hear this, until I realized this wasn't the picture you always had, right? So you, no, your yeah. picture, and probably many of our Mormon listeners know just what picture you're talking about is him sitting there translating like a regular translator, like a Bible translator would do. Yeah, yeah, they would be translating from Hebrew to English or from Hebrew to Greek and Greek to English or whatever, right? Like that's not what was happening here. He he was looking at a stone in a hat and dictating um without handling the plates, without, you know, reading the the ancient reformed Egyptian hieroglyphs that he claimed were written on those plates. So so that that was a obviously pretty eye-opening. Now, I always knew he had a seer stone. I always knew it helped him in the translation process, but I didn't know uh, the history around the seer stone idea. I didn't know that it was illegal. I didn't know that other people were doing it. I didn't know that other people were ripping people off on treasure digs. I also didn't know that Joseph Smith was one of those people, <laughs> right? Like, and I didn't know he was charged for it, like criminal charges. So like, that was that was all very eye-opening to me when I read this essay, did a little bit of digging, and, and ultimately like, um, you know, read Rough Stone Rolling from Richard Bushman, which it's interesting. So Bushman is a, is a church historian. Fawn Brody wrote, wrote all this stuff. The, the book you referenced, No Man Knows My History, she was excommunicated for it. Um, but, but Bushman, I mean, he, he writes the same stuff, uh, but isn't excommunicated for it because, again, the church, uh, from what I understand, I could be wrong here, but from what I understand, the, the church asked him to write this book because uh, they, they were hoping, just like these essays, to, to be able to put their own um, understanding behind it, right? Rather than maybe a negative slant. So, Bo, when you went on your mission as an LDS missionary, young man out of high school, you go out, you faithfully serve your mission. You had to do some preparation before the mission. Did they reveal some of this stuff to you and prep for your mission? <laughs> no, no, this is not in mission prep mm. classes. No, that you're, you know, you're told Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon by the gift and power of God. Absolutely. Right, um, and that it's the most correct of any book. Yeah, of course you're you're taught that, and you're taught to tell people that. Um, you're also taught to tell people there was a great apostasy, and that we that we can only trust the Bible as far as it's translated correctly. But when you look at the two, when you compare the translation process of the Bible from written word to written word to written word, 
um, poured over thousands and thousands of times, right? And we have thousands of manuscripts to confirm compared to uh, an ancient golden record that we do not have access to. Um, because again, and, and maybe for listeners that don't know this, Joseph Smith, after translating the Book of Mormon, um, deposits the book back into a hill and it's taken away by an angel. So we don't have that record. Um, we do have the ancient records of the Bible and we do know that it's translated correctly. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it's pretty interesting, right? What, what we were taught as missionaries, what we were taught to teach as missionaries versus what, you know, what you come to find out. And again, this is, um, just from reading from this essay. So, so it goes on to talk about the, the mechanics of translation, right? And it says that, um, that according to most of the accounts, Joseph placed either the interpreter or, or the seer stone in a hat, pressed his face in the hat to block out extraneous light, and read aloud the English words that appeared on the instrument. The process described brings to mind a pastor in the Book of Mormon that speaks of God preparing a stone which shall shine forth in darkness unto light. So that's that's from the Book of Mormon, right? That's how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. He did not read the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. He looked at a stone and a hat. And so for me, I always knew a bit of that folklore, but it was never like plain as day in my face as it was when I read this essay. And again, thinking about how I was going to teach this to, to high school students was tricky because even the, the church video we that we were approved to show them showed Joseph translating it by touching the plates, reading the hieroglyphs, hmm. speaking it aloud in English. Robert Cowdery writes it down. So like, it, or all, excuse me, Oliver Cowdery writes it down. So it just was like, how do I do this? And, and obviously that just didn't work out. So anyway, that's, that's the translation of the book of Mormon. Let me ask you one more question about that before we move on. So there's a section in here and I've always been a little confused by this. Let me read this section. It says, Joseph received the plates in September 1827, and the following spring in Harmony, Pennsylvania, began translating them in earnest, with Emma and his friend Martin Harris serving as his main scribes. The resulting English transcription, known as the Book of Lehi, and referred to by Joseph Smith as written on 116 pages, was subsequently lost or stolen, and as a result, Joseph Smith was rebuked by the Lord and lost the ability to translate for a short time. So, I've heard about this a little bit, but I'm a little bit confused. So what is this? Did you know about this, and how was this explained yeah. to you? Yeah, this is... Everybody knows about this okay. because it's it's used to, to showcase um, obedience. Mm. It's, a, it's a big lesson in obedience in the church. So you're, you're taught this at a young age. Like, if you don't obey the Lord, like, major, major things can happen. For example, even the prophet Joseph lost the ability to translate. So that, that's definitely something you're taught. Yeah, the 116 pages um, were the very, it's basically the first chapters of the Book of Mormon mm. written by f the father uh, that came across, which was Le uh, Lehi. And um, so when those pages were lost by Martin Harris, uh, Joseph ultimately receives revelation from the Lord not to retranslate those 116 pages. Which again is that's tricky, right? Because what the Lord says in the revelation to Joseph is that there are evil men who will try to change his original translation to show that he doesn't have the power to translate. So he shouldn't retranslate. But 
God knew that was going to happen, so he prepared the book of Nephi to summarize what the book of Lehi okay, so, had covered. So the book of... Huh, that's interesting. The book of Lehi is not in the Book of Mormon. No, does it's not there. They, it, he never retranslated it. I gotcha. Because God, according to Joseph, God told him not to, right? Okay, so what is the skeptic's explanation <laughs> of what yeah, happened I mean, here? look, obviously a, a skeptic is going to say, well, it's probably because he he can't remember word for word what he said before. So if he tries to retranslate it and Martin Harris compares the two, Martin Harris is going to find out Joseph is a phony, right? Or anybody that has that record. Now, that's the skeptic. Um, in Mormonism, you're always taught that there were evil men that were going to change the translation. Mm. So if Joseph retranslated it, they would try to prove he wasn't a true prophet. So it goes either way, right? So, <laughs> But yeah, I, for sure, a skeptic can, can see right through so that. So is this, is this the one where the, the, I, the history tells us that it was Martin Harris's wife? Who took yes. it and hid it? Um, did she hang on to it to try to prove? Did is is that the story that I'm getting right? Is okay. Martin Harris is part of this translation, and well, then yeah, and so, she so, she sees through it, and then she and then she says, "Well, let's here, let's hang on to this. Tell him we lost it, and see if he translates it. Then we'll know if he really is a." And yeah, and I, and I don't know how much of that is 100 percent true. What I do know is she she was pretty worried about. Martin Harris spending so much time with Joseph okay. and about this translation being real. And so she was egging Martin Harris on to get, to get that manuscript so she could see it. I see. Cause she's like, Hey, you're spending a lot of time over there. You're saying you're translating this record. I don't buy it. And so Martin Harris was begging Joseph. Joseph said he prayed about it. The Lord told him, no, Martin Harris asked again. Joseph said, fine, do it. So he disobeyed the Lord here, right? Martin Harris takes the record to his wife to prove it. Now, what happens from there is there's a lot of different gotcha. stories. Um, but the point is, yeah, it was never retranslated. So then we get the book of Nephi that starts out the Book of Mormon. And essentially, the book of Nephi summarizes the book of Lehi um, before it hops into summarizing Isaiah. Okay, randomly. and then and then Martin Harris isn't involved in the translation. Then it's is that when Oliver Cowdery yep. ends up being involved in the translation? Yeah, that's right. So Emma Emma gets involved too, and then Oliver Cowdery steps in as the full time scribe. Yep. Okay, so that's the Book of Mormon. Now, that's that's a pretty important scripture for the Mormons, but another important scripture. It's the, the keystone, is what they would call it. Yeah, very important. And that's why it's higher up understanding the translation, quote-unquote. Okay, before we move on to the next translation, let's talk about the word translation. A translation technically means that you take the original language, let's say, you know, a any readers out there, any listeners out there who maybe have a King James translation or a New Living translation or a um, NIV translation, those are translations because scholars who understand the language translate the language from from Greek, he, Aramaic, Hebrew, ancient yeah. the ancient documents and translate it into the modern language. Okay, so that's called a translation. A paraphrase is when you take a translation like the English like the King James version for example, and I and I'm not a scholar, I'm not a language scholar, I take the translation in English, and I put it into easier to understand English. That's called a paraphrase. 
So, so that's just a little bonus for our listeners that, that that's how we talk about translations and paraphrases. So for example, the living Bible is a paraphrase because it was written by a dad who wanted to write a Bible for his kid. I think that it's a living Bible. It's basically like a kid's version of the Bible, but he wasn't a scholar. He took the King James version and then wrote it into language that his kids could understand. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just really important to understand whether it's a translation or a paraphrase. It's important to know what you're reading. Like in the English Standard Version is a translation that is a word for word. It's a literal translation. The translators were not interested in making it easier for you to understand. They just wanted to be as faithful to the text word for word. The New Living Translation is a translation where the translators, they're still translators, but they had a little bit of a different idea. They, it's more of a thought-for-thought thought translation. So that's why the New Living Translation is easier to understand than the English Standard Version for most of us because they're, because they're, translate, they're both translations, but with a different intent. So all of that background to say, Bo, is the Book of Mormon a translation? Yeah, not not in... Not in that uh, definition, no, because he's he's not translating the ancient Reformed Egyptian mm-hmm. hieroglyphs into English. Um, yeah, he's not, and and even you know it's interesting. So as we get into the translation, this this next essay, the translation and historicity of the Book of Abraham, um, they even start to try to redefine the word translation mm-hmm. here because. Because, look, the, the Book of Abraham causes a big problem, um, and it did for me. It does for most Mormons that, that really actually study how this record came to be. Um, and when I read this essay, that, that's when I was really shaken. Uh, and it's the last one. So let's back up and let's explain the Book of Abraham. What, what is the Book of Abraham to a Mormon? So explain this to us, and then let's talk about the sketchy translation of it. Yeah, so the Book of Abraham is a book of scripture that uh, Mormons are taught was written by Abraham, um, and it contains some pretty plain and precious truths that are that are really important to Mormonism. So, um, what what we're taught is that Joseph Smith translated this uh, ancient record, um, and it's part of what's known as the Pearl of Great Price. Um, which is one of the four standard works of Scripture in Mormonism. So you have the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, which is the Book of Abraham and the Book of Moses, and then you have the Doctrine and Covenants. So the Book of Abraham is one of the four standard works, and um, and you study it uh, a lot in in Mormon Mormon churches. So. So that's that's what the book of Abraham is is or, or what the claim is of it. Now it it, it came to be through um, it was essentially an ancient Egyptian papyri that Joseph Smith uh, gained possession of in the eighteen hundreds. It was like eighteen thirty five or something, um, and essentially claimed when he when he purchased that record um, he he then started translating it and ultimately claimed that it was a translation from Abraham that it was an actual record of the ancient prophet Abraham and that he translated it from Egyptian into English 
So let me, let me pause there and let me give, again, I'm going to read, just literally read from the Gospel Topics essay. And then, Bo, I'm going to ask you the question, what was your understanding before you read this, by the way? But here's what the official LDS Church says about this. It's under the section called Origin of the Book of Abraham. The powerful truths found in the Book of Abraham emerged from a set of unique historical events. And here they are. In the summer of 1835, you got that right, Bo, an entrepreneur named Michael Chandler arrived at church headquarters in Kirtland, Ohio. At this point, they were in Ohio with four mummies and multiple scrolls of papyrus. Chandler found a ready audience. Due partly to the exploits of the French Emperor Napoleon, the antiquities unearthed in the catacombs of Egypt had created a fascination across the Western world. Chandler capitalized on this interest by touring with ancient Egyptian artifacts and charging visitors a fee to see them. So he's like a traveling museum. These artifacts had been uncovered by Antonio Labolo, a former cavalryman in the Italian army. He oversaw some of the excavations for the consul general of France, pulled 11 mummies from a tomb not far from the ancient city of Thebes. Labolo shipped the artifacts to Italy, and after his death, they ended up in New York. At some point, the mummies and scrolls came into Chandler's possession. So the whole idea to this, right, is that, that these are legit, these are legit artifacts from Egypt, and I, I don't think that's in question, right? That's not the question. Even 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 uh, anti-Mormon literature isn't going to question that. No, yeah, that's that's not a question. In fact, they've they've been confirmed to be ancient Egyptian papyrus scrolls. Okay, yeah. so what is the problem? So so far, again, the Mormon scholars are writing this essay and they're 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 legitimizing this. Check 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 check. We're all good. So. Joseph Smith ends up with, but he ends up with one of the scrolls, two of the scrolls, how many? Yeah, a few of them actually. And he, he then hops straight into, into translating them. Um, and he's pretty excited about them. Uh, studies the, the language, tries to figure out if he can translate it, etc. Ultimately decides, um, yeah, he's going to do it. So he starts translating this ancient record um, from these papyrus scrolls. And... Uh, that's that's how we get the Book of Abraham, right? Now, these this this then becomes scriptural canon by the Mormon Church, um, LDS Church, and these ancient papyrus scrolls are lost for years, like hundred years, uh, maybe even more. So, so for over a hundred years, there's there's no record. Uh, there's no papyrus scrolls. We just got to, again, yet again, take Joseph's word for it. Um, but then in the, I want to say it's the, the 1970s, maybe 1967. Yeah, 1967. Here it is in this essay. In 1967, the museum um, found and transferred these fragments to the church, which subsequently pu- published them in the church's magazine, The Improvement Era. So they actually found these papyrus scrolls much later on, and the church confirmed that these were Joseph's translation, like these were Joseph's uh, papyrus scrolls, fragments from them. In fact, they'd even had Joseph Smith's writing on the back of them, some hand drawings of uh, the temple, etc., that Joseph had been mapping out on the back of those papyrus scrolls. So they were confirmed to be his, confirmed to be legitimate, um, and the church was so excited about this because this was their opportunity now to to 
get rid of all the doubt, right? Like Egyptologists can now actually translate what, what they couldn't do back in Joseph's day. They can now accurately translate what was on these papyrus scrolls. And um, yeah, I mean, even I, uh, there's a pretty cool quote from Bruce R. McConkie where he basically just says like, it's one of the most significant things to happen in church history, the fact that we found these, right? So they're all, they're all excited, yeah, at this point. This reminds me of when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls in, in you know, yeah, mid-1900s, and now this was our chance to verify whether the Bible is, was translated correctly because we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we can now, with modern archaeology and mo modern linguistics, we can, we can compare. So let's put a pin in that, and let's go back to the uh, Book of Abraham discovery. So here's what was discovered as, as these fragments were studied by, uh, by Egyptologists, okay? Um, one, they found that these fragments were, um, were not uh, from Abraham's day. Um, these fragments date to between the 3rd century BCE and the 1st century CE, so long after Abraham lived. Um, they also found that none of the characters, and again, I'm reading from the essay here, none of the characters on the papyrus fragments mentioned Abraham or any of the events recorded in the Book of Abraham. Um, Latter-day Saint and non-Latter-day Egyptologists agree that the characters on the fragments do not match the translation given in the Book of Abraham. Um, so that's... That's pretty intense <laughs> for a Mormon to read, right? Like that, reading that is, it causes you to just all, just really realize um, that, okay, if, if he said he translated this, and this was the book of Abraham, and now we have Egyptologists saying it totally was not, it was, and what Egyptologists all confirm is that it was an ancient Egyptian burial scroll and there's a ton of them in fact it was a very routine thing to do is to bury someone with a, with one of those burial scrolls and the images in the papyrus that, that we have even published in the book of uh abraham in, in the pearl of great price um you, you'll find the basics of those images in any um, egyptian burial scroll so very deflating for a Mormon seminary teacher to read, <laughs> definitely, uh, I mean, especially when people had been, like, excommunicated for teaching some of this stuff back in the day, for the church to then confirm that, yeah, like, none of this, um, none of the characters on the papyrus mention Abraham, none of the events recorded in the book of Abraham are on these fragments, and, uh, yeah, so it was obviously drawing for me, and now, compare that to, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. You compare it to the Dead Sea Scrolls and it's a completely different story, right? The Dead Sea Scrolls confirm that uh, everything we had, it was like 99% the same of the the ancient book of Isaiah versus the, the modern version we have. It's like, how, how different can that those two experiences be, right? Where you have the claim of an ancient translation that comes that turns out to be false. I mean, even the Mormon church is admittedly saying, yeah, like 
this this definitely these what Joseph Smith translated was not the book of Abraham. Um, now they go on in this essay to, to say a few things, right? Uh, they go on to say that look, neither the Lord nor Joseph explained the process of translation, um, but some insight can be gained from the Lord's instructions to Joseph, right? So study it out in your mind, and then seek spiritual confirmation. So records indicate that Joseph and others studied the papyri, and that close observers also believe that the translation came by revelation. So rather than translation, they're now saying revelation, right? And then they say that um, that Joseph's study of the papyri may have led, and this is something that I always found interesting when I read this, um, Joseph's study of the papyri may have led to a revelation about key events and teachings in life of Abraham. Um, so so they're, they're kind of backing off of the word translation now and saying, well, okay, so he didn't translate it, <laughs> but a broader definition of the words translator or translation could mean that he actually just, he used it as inspiration to write this historical account of Abraham that has nothing to do with these ancient Egyptian papyri scrolls, which essentially is the only claim the Mormon Church can make at this point. Yeah, let me read from that, that part of the Gospel Topics essay. It says, according to this view, his translation was not a literal rendering of the papyri as conventional translation, but rather the physical artifacts provided an occasion for meditation, reflection, and revelation they catalyze a process whereby God gave to Joseph Smith a revelation, so not a translation, but a revelation about the life of Abraham, even if that revelation did not directly correlate to the characters on the papyri. Now, I'm, Bo, I'm trying to contain myself. I'm reading this, and I can't even imagine what you were thinking when you're reading this, because you'd been a Mormon your entire life. You'd gone on a mission. I mean, you were a good, solid, yeah. faithful Mormon. You believed this stuff. Like, what were you thinking 10 years ago when you read these words? Yeah, I just, uh, oh man, I hate talking about it, mm-hmm. <laughs> honestly. I, because uh, I just um, all of a sudden just felt, how do I say this? I, I just, I felt lied to. Um, and it just, it just, it was so. Um, it, it just caused me to question everything, right? It caused me to question, well, okay, well, if, if, if all of this was confirmed to be false, he didn't actually translate it, well, then what about the Book of Mormon, right? And then you read the Book of Mormon essay, and you're like, wait a second, okay, it was a stone in the hat, but it was the same stone he used to rip people off on treasure digs? Like, wait a second, what? And then, so, so you, 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 and then, anyway, we'll get into these polygamy essays, and, and then I study those, right? So it's just, they just, it snowballs. And uh, so for me as a seminary teacher and someone who had dedicated my life to this thing, um, who had been a good, a good boy not reading any of the anti-Mormon stuff, right? For all of the anti-Mormon stuff I'd ever heard about, to be confirmed in these essays was uh, was devastating for me. So, Yeah. So what's going on, you know, for me, maybe I'm just naive, but for me, I'm thinking something like this comes out. And so when did this come out? I, I, maybe I missed that. Was in the six, late 60s, early 70s that this stuff came out? And I guess the question is, 
I guess I'm thinking this is it. Like this is going to be the nail in the coffin for Mormonism, but it wasn't. So what, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm trying to understand, I'm trying to understand how, how a Mormon processes this. Maybe you can't even answer this, but how does, I mean, I know how you process this, process this, which is pretty shocking to me because you had everything to lose. I mean, you had your job to lose, you had your family to lose, you had potentially your marriage to lose. Now you didn't, but you could have, you'd probably heard the stories. So you had so much to lose. There are a lot of Mormons that don't even have that much to lose. Yeah. Who may have already read this. I don't know, maybe you can't answer this, but what are they thinking? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think one, most still aren't reading these essays mm-hmm. published on the church's website. I think most still avoid these topics mm-hmm. because, look, Brian, it's, it feels really good to believe in something, right? As, and it feels really good to be a part of a community. It feels good to have a surety. And what you're always taught is you know the church is true. You know the Book of Mormon is true. You know Joseph Smith is a prophet. So, so it's really hard for anybody to question their worldview um, and to question what they believe in and question what they were raised in. But as, when you do, and when you do kind of pull back the curtain a bit, uncover some things like this, um, and look, I'm grateful the Mormon church is owning up to some of this stuff, right? And uh, for me, it was a realization that like I had to think about things differently. I had to figure out what what is true, what's not. Um, and ultimately it led me down a path of, you know, finding a relationship with God and Jesus. And I'm grateful for that. So, um, and my hope and the, you know, obviously the reason that I'm doing these podcasts is, is for people to, to find Jesus. And I truly believe that, um, you know, there are amazing people in the Mormon church, uh, that, if given the opportunity, would leap at the chance of following the biblical Jesus. And I think, um, the you know, the more that, that can be pulled back here, the more people can understand this stuff, I think the, the clearer it becomes. But, but yeah, to answer your question of, you know, maybe why? Why, why, <laughs> why do people stay in the Mormon church after knowing all this stuff? I think, you know, they're, they're pretty comfortable in their worldview. They're com- comfortable in what they believe in. And, and ultimately, look, if, if you truly believe Joseph Smith was a prophet, then you're going to convince yourself to believe any of this, right? You're going to convince yourself to believe that it doesn't matter if the record wasn't from Abraham. It doesn't matter if it wasn't ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. It doesn't matter if it was a stone in a hat. It's still all true. But... But I think what's what I'm grateful for is the clarity and the surety the Bible provides in like you don't have to worry about the, the history of it compared to you know what what written word we have today and compared to what what Jesus asks of us and what, and what you know what, like does that make sense Brian mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to explain this because what the Bible teaches has been the same for thousands of years, and we can rely on it. Um, and what the Mormon church has taught over the last 200 years has changed and evolved quite significantly. Um, and as more and more history is uncovered, 
the more things have to, have to change. Even the word translation is being changed here, right? So, so I'm just grateful that we can rely on, um, on the Bible. And we don't have to worry about it being, quote-unquote, translated correctly. Because um, it was. And here's why. Let's finish with this. This is straight from um, topic number two, chapter number two in the pursuit on, on PursueGod.org. And it's, it describes what you're describing right here, Bo. Because again, Mormons say, well, the Bible's only accurate as far as it's translated correctly. Well, here's, here was the ultimate test. In 1947, a shepherd boy discovered some ancient scrolls hidden away in remote caves in the Middle East. This led to even more discoveries in the area. These were the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in the end, almost a thousand manuscripts were recovered. Parts of almost every book of the Old Testament were found, and some of those fra fragments proved to be almost a thousand years older than the oldest manuscripts known at a time. So again, he, this is in 1947. So here, all the skeptics are saying, ah, you know, this is going to disprove the Bible. Like when the book of, was it the book of Lehi was lost? And then, but, but then all of a sudden it just, God didn't let him translate the book of Lehi. So you couldn't prove anything. Or when the book of Abraham, the papyri turned out to be nothing about Abraham or not even dated back to that. So those things would be bricks against the Mormon church. But look at what happened. This perfect test with the Dead Sea Scrolls. The book of Isaiah provides the most compelling example since the Dead Sea Scrolls contain a complete copy of the prophet's writings. Okay. So from the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah when compared to the Masoretic text, so that was the text that was the oldest copy that we previously knew about, which dated back to about 800 AD. The Dead Sea Scrolls copy dated back to almost a thousand years older, and the Isaiah manuscripts compared to the Dead Sea Scrolls was over 95% identical. The only differences were minor, often just variations in spelling. So again, here the skeptics are, they're looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls saying, we're going to finally, this is the nail in the coffin for Christianity, but it did the opposite. It proved, and Mormons, I want you to hear this, it proved that the Bible is reliable. It's worth trusting. You don't have to wonder if it was translated incorrectly because it's not one guy looking into a hat and a seer stone. It's a bunch of scribes who faithfully translated and copied Year, you know, generation after generation, painstakingly copied the law of Moses, all that, you know, Isaiah, and we have proof of it in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Bo, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I think um, we're, we're going to get into to more of these essays, but um, th this is not, you know, my intention is not to tear down the Mormon church. It's just to talk about uh, these issues and, and read through these the essays that the Mormon Church published and explain, you know, what happens to me and what happens to a lot of people as they get into this history that was, you know, covered up and, and ultimately has now been uncovered. And it's important for us to, to understand it and ultimately make a, make a decision one way or the other on it. So I, my encouragement is that we make a decision on it uh, and that that decision leads us closer to God. Hey listeners, Pastor Brian here. If you're enjoying our podcast, would you consider becoming a donor? Our goal is that these podcasts would reach the largest audience possible. So obviously it takes money to create good podcasts, but more than that, we want to make sure to market this to the whole nation and even to the world. That's where your donation comes in. So would you consider becoming a monthly donor? And to do it, just visit PursueGod.org forward slash donate.